I'm Matt Godbolt. And I'm Ben Rady. And this is Two's Compliment, a programming podcast. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? Very good. Excellent. Well, we don't normally refer to uh, things that have happened in the news mm-hmm. because that gives us a certain flexibility in the order that we release these recordings. Right. But you and I were literally just talking about the fact that Broadcom has bought VMware and mm-hmm. we were going to talk about some level of containers versus not containers versus mm-hmm. virtualization versus whatever. And it seems like we should we should bring that up. So yeah, let's talk. What seems are you... like a good topic. Right, exactly. It's such a deep one. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we've got varying levels of experience in different technologies for Mm -hmm. essentially what is, how do I make sure my software works in the environment that I'm expecting it to? And I'm I'm thinking personally from this point of view, like a developer who deploys server type applications, headless applications that run on machines in the cloud or in data centers and whatever like that. Mm -hmm. But I guess actually now I'm saying that I was sort of giving that so that you know I can't say um, too much about how UI stuff is developed. But then there's a number of software packages I see for Linux these days that come as a pack file or a um, uh, what are those things called? There's there's a there's a bunch of different snaps there snapshots which are essentially here's a here's a whole operating system's worth of application wrapped into a file system and then presented as if it's like a, a single thing and. It's like a Docker container, right? But but mm-hmm. differently. So so it it it's it's everywhere, and I think we all want software that's easy to deploy and run. But there's a number of ways of achieving it. Yeah. Now, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's interesting that I think you and I have a, a sort of a similar perspective, and that we look at those tools that way. And if we asked somebody who you know was a little bit more focused on infrastructure, mm-hmm. they would probably tell us something similar, but definitely not the same in terms of like. Being able to take, um, you know, a fixed amount of hardware that they have provisioned and paid for, and you know, have uh, pre-purchased the electricity for, and have backup batteries for, and have networking for, and say, okay, well, how do I take this sort of fixed resource and allocate it out to all of the uh, needy, greedy software engineers who keep telling me that they want more servers? Um, oh, I got to have a server for this app and I have a server for this app and a server for this app. Um, and so, you know, I think from their perspective, they might see some of these virtualization tools as a way to, um, you know, manage those resources more effectively and have um, a little bit more control over not only just the resources themselves in terms of memory and compute, but also the, the sort of blast radius if one of them, you know, goes horribly wrong, right? right. Like, you know, being able to, uh, you know, wipe an image and, and give someone a fresh new server uh, with a few clicks of a button is way easier than driving down to the data center and <laughs> unracking a machine that is no longer responsive um, because somebody did something terrible to it. So Never. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I've never done that. Never right? done that. Uh, Oops, so... I just fork bombed my own machine. <laughs> <laughs> so you're right, actually. That's a very valid point. Um, those infrastructural things are super important and... It's sort of a, a funny thing. We were, I was talking about it at lunch with a bunch of folks the other day and um, regaling with a story from, from my past and a friend of mine who used to work at uh, uh, a big airline. And those folks are still using mainframes. And mainframes have always been able to do all the things that we're now kind of starting to rediscover in that virtualization world. Right. You know, like, hey, you want more yes. CPUs? Yeah, we can bolt more CPUs on while the mainframe's still running. Hey, you want to shut down the mainframe, do maintenance and bring it back up again? Sure. What we can do is we can teleport the mainframe's image up to a backup site. Nobody even notices that your connection is now going to Manchester instead of London. Mm-hmm. Um, and your terminals keep on responding. Everyone's still doing their re- requests and the batch jobs are still going. The, meanwhile, they power down the main machine, fix the RAM, and then it, you can teleport it back. And those things have been around for you know half a century and yet we're rediscovering them in terms of what I mean. Specifically, you're mentioning things uh, like uh, like VMware um, uh, allow you to manage the resources really fine grained and make those kinds of like, hey, we need to move from one machine to another machine. I it's it's sort of miraculous that yeah. it that it works as well as it does. Yes, yes, yes. 
Yeah, because those mainframes were clearly designed with those specific use cases in mind, right? Hardware like, capabilities to do those things. Right, right. They built those things from the ground up with like, okay, we're going to be able to do this off-site backup and we're going to make sure that it all works. And with all these other things, we sort of backed our way into it because it's like, clearly there's a need to do that. But, you know, the old school operating systems and CPU architectures and all these other things that we have, uh, maybe someone gave that a thought a long time ago, but they certainly desi- didn't design the whole ecosystem from the ground up to be able to do that. Right. And so now we're sort of um, in this state where it's like that need is still there, the desire is still there, and it's this sort of tricky problem of, okay, well, how do you actually do that? And, yeah, folks like it. VMware have got their solution for it. There are obviously right. other vendors that can do it, and and of course, I mean, one should should note as well that the the chip manufacturers have been slowly heading this way too, adding more and more like hardware level virtualization things. Because mm-hmm. you know, like we've always been able to do these things. It's like my my hobby of writing little uh, emulators for old s- machines. Once you can fully emulate something, of course, its state is just a bunch of numbers that you've got. You can move that around anywhere you like, and then kind of carry on somewhere else, and mm-hmm. have you know your single step through each frame of a game and then go backwards because you could just emulate from a snapshot one fewer frame forward and keep you know that kind of stuff so this has always been possible but it was just infeasible to do it without actually running the same cpu as you're you're trying to virtualize and and the same hardware but then things have come along but i feel like we're going off base from where we where i was thinking (laughs) of going i just got excited which is what this podcast is about right yeah yeah no i mean i I think these all these things are all are all kind of related you know you can um, and maybe, I, I don't think we should necessarily dive into this at the start, but one place that you could maybe take this is like, this isn't just about virtual computers, it's also about virtual networking equipment, right? Like if you look at, you know, some of the tools that are out there, it's like, yeah, you, you think that this IP address is a switch, but it's it's not. Like, <laughs> I mean, one only imagines what's going on in like the, the AWSs and the right. Google Cloud infrastructure in terms of their physical network separation and their ability to, as you say, make it look like you have your own cloud to yourself, right. knowing yeah. that actually, no, those, those fibers are the same fibers that everyone else is using between right. all of the racks. It's right, all magic. Right, right. yeah. Um, but yeah, talking specifically about the, uh, the part of this that is, you know, I, as a software developer somebody who's you know sort of building a, a total application you want to be able to deploy it that's really important uh you want to be able to um you know connect to the machine that's running it and troubleshoot it and read the logs and you know run tcp dump and netstat and all the other wonderful <laughs> tools that we talked about in some prior podcast um and you know still uh have the flexibility of of, of the things that we were talking about in terms of you know um, you know, making maximal use of those resources and being able to tear it up and down and being able to, um, you know, build uh, the definition of what that system is uh, in a configuration file rather than, you know, in a PC Here's part a checklist picker. that Barry has <laughs> yeah. to go down yeah, and uh, right. make sure they all look the same, right? Yeah, right. yeah, 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 right, right. Um, and so, you know, there's 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 lots of lots of different tools to do this, but I think they all sort of serve the same need. So what are some of the tools that you've, that you've actually used in anger to do this? Well, I mean, the main one that springs to mind, uh, other than bespoke ones that I guess became Kubernetes, when I was at Google, there were some things that became sort of like strange containery type things. I don't know if it's exactly the same thing now, I think it out loud. But but the one I have the most experience with is, is Docker. And Docker is a great solution to the, I want to have a reproducible environment that's incrementally built with layers and so it's relatively efficient if you are only changing the end layers and um and you can definitely have the that kind of feeling of like well if i have a docker image that i can give to you and you're going to run it then i am 99.69 you percent mm-hmm. positive that if it worked on my machine it worked on your machine because what i in fact did was ship my machine to you and now you're running my machine mm-hmm. <laughs> which mm-hmm is a blessing and a curse and i think that's the problem right is that it can be misused like anything like any technology mm-hmm. um, my experiences with docker so compiler explorer started out actually it didn't start out with anything it just started out with a shell script running the node js on a bare machine and then very quickly it was like how am i going to manage this so i decided to use docker rather sensibly and at the, at the time and docker served us well for many many years um Docker did not scale with the 
gigabytes of and gigabytes, you know, hundreds of gigabytes of compilers that I wanted to build into the image. The images took longer and longer every time to build. We're going to take a pause there while my wife comes in through. The through the door. couch? Through the back. Yeah, through the couch. <laughs> See, How the couch have I never moving. realized that there's a door behind your couch? How else do you get between um, places? <laughs> you know, we put flu powder in. And then we can go anywhere to any other couch. <laughs> Diagon Alley, that's how, that's how this works. That is exactly how this works. Sorry. It's okay. The back door is jammed. Okay, the back door's. Oh, no. So you had to come so in through the couch door. They had to come in through the couch door. <laughs> All right, there goes my dog. And then we're going to have to try and remember what I was saying and work something out. Or just pretend <laughs> it didn't happen and just put this in and, you know, give our listener... Uh, I was just thinking, actually, I hope our listener isn't called Barry, because I always use Barry as uh, as, as, as my general dog's body person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to do I Barry. I say Steve for some yeah, okay. reason. I don't know why that Steve? name. That's... Steve. Yeah. So we were talking about Docker. And yeah, you're talking saying... about using Docker in, in uh, Compiler Explorer. That's yeah. right. So the problem with um, bigger and bigger images is that um, no matter how you cut it, you're uploading layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of a, of a piece of software with more and more compilers. And it was just getting unwieldy. Mm -hmm. And there are definitely tricks you can do with volumes and other things like that. And we, we looked at them for a while, but ultimately we backed it out when we realized we needed more security than Docker would give us. There were some, at the time there were some relatively high privilege um, exploits for breaking out of Docker containers into the wider world. And we were kind of, mm -hmm tacitly relying on docker to also be a sort of protection domain and the other thing is that if you're running inside that container even if you um even if you don't get privilege escalation outside that container that container is long-lived so if you're like servicing somebody's request and it was a poison request and it was able to monkey with the system it's now monkeyed with that running docker container and so it's going to be there until we restart the machine or restart the container so there were some things we didn't want um properties we didn't um that we wanted to get in terms of jailing. And once you're in one container, you can't have a container inside a container and inside a right. container arbitrarily, or at right, least at the right. time you couldn't. So we switched out to a, a different approach where we just have tarballs and run them on the operating system. But it did serve a need for a long time. And it's a frequent question we get asked is, hey, do you publish a Docker container of what you, of a compiler explorer uh, instance that I can just get started because people do just want to do Docker run, blah, blah. And you get that benefit. It just works. Yeah, um, we have different ways of achieving that, I think. But um, it. So anyway, that's my experience with Docker. I also have used it at a number of places at work, and um, I think it works great if you plan very carefully your Docker image layout and the layers are sensible and well managed. And yeah. So when you say a Docker layer, what do you what do you mean? What's a layer? So Docker logically is um, a file system, a whole operating file system. It has, um, it literally untars, for want of a better um, explanation, into a bunch of temporary directories and then overlays each directory, uh, one directory over the other. So you start with a base image, which is maybe, you know, like your entire Ubuntu distribution. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to install these 20 apt packages that I need. And so the next layer will be another file system that only contains the things that change between the base system and the system where you ran sudo apt install my 100 packages I needed, my extra packages. Mm -hmm. And then the next layer might be, oh, and now I'm going to copy some files from my Git repo that I'm running it in into the container at a particular location. And that's another layer of the file system that only contains those copied files. And then so on and so forth. Each, each layer would add in more bits of the software and configuration. And the cool thing is, of course, is that you only need to regenerate layers that changed and, of course, the layers that are immediately after them. So if I change, for example, the base Ubuntu image, of course, everything depends upon that. So I'll have to rerun the commands that populated the later layers and create new layers. But if I'm just changing my application software and I don't change my dependencies and my system dependencies, then oftentimes it's only that last layer of a few hundred kilobytes or so that yeah. changes. And so uh, not only is the build time faster, but the way that Docker, Docker um, distributes itself is as compressed layers. And very often, of course, if you're upgrading software time and time again, those base layers are already on the system in the cache somewhere. And the only thing that you need to do is upload the few hundred K each time, which is fabulous. Yeah. So that's a really good way of, of having um, a, a sort of incremental deployment of your, of your software. Yeah. 
So what happens if I have like a, a layer that's like fetch the latest version of this thing from the internet? Well, that's that is an excellent question. And uh, that is one of the biggest problems with something like Docker is that mm. it's very easy. Uh, Docker cache is based on the text contents of the command it's going to run. Oh, so okay. if you just say curl, get me latest version of something, pipe mm. through tar, ZXF or whatever to extract it, then that command will run exactly once on your machine when it populates that layer. And then if you run again, having uploaded up, having changed the um, the contents on the website that you're curling from, mm -hmm. or like a new version of the software is released and you, yeah. the URL doesn't encode that in some way, you know, you're getting, right. you know, like getting latest or bob.latest, exactly yeah. right. Then right. you won't see that. But unfortunately, anyone who later builds with your Docker container will see that change. And so these things will not necessarily agree. Right. And so it's right. really important that if you are fetching external resources, uh, and it's so easy not to get this right, but if you are fetching external resources, that you get like a specifically named version of everything that you want to get for two reasons. One, it means that you get reproducibility if someone else grabs your Docker file and just says, build me this, please. And the second thing is that necessarily, if you want to change that image, you have to edit the the URL that encodes the Git right. SHA or the version number or whatever, and which means that it will be rebuilt automatically. But it's hard to do that right. And it's hard to make sure you apply that everywhere. Right. Even things like the base image itself, you know, oftentimes when you say in the Docker file, hey, I'd like to build something based on Ubuntu 20.04, that's essentially what you say. You say from Ubuntu colon 20.04, from Ubuntu colon latest or something like that. And those are kind of like a git pull of whatever someone has tagged as being the 2004 right. for Ubuntu. If right, you really, right, really right. want to make sure you get reproducible builds, you need to put the SHA hash of that particular layer in the get command as well so that you know you're always going to start with a, um, a, a, the same version. And of course, there's a duality there, right? It's convenient from, you know, from my mindset. It's great to have a totally reproducible build. Mm -hmm. And that means that I can hand you a Docker file, not, not the com contents of the Docker image, right? That's different. But if I hand you just the text that says, this is how to build my world, you right. will get the same answer that I got every time. And that's really powerful. But it's super inconvenient because um, every time some little trivial fix in the base image is pushed, you know, a security patch or a security fix or whatever, then mm -hmm. I have to think to go back and change the shard to be the latest one. And that kind of feel if I want to keep those things going. And of course, right. the first thing you're going to do, this is almost always what the first uh, line after the from Ubuntu is, sudo, not sudo because you're running as root, is apt get update and update, update sorry, upgrade and update, right? Because you want yeah. to pull in, pull in all of the, the, the things that are, are latest. And there's no kind of version for that. There's no bi-temporality to that. So you're a bit stuck at that point. Um, and that factors into where some of the problems that one has with with something like docker it's a boon but you have to be really careful how to use it and have to understand these slightly sharp edges and maybe most people don't care about those but i know that it's affected us before and we we have a you know you and i have definitely got um in, in an industry where we really want to be able to reproduce what we did before and, and understand it mm -hmm. um, um yeah it's also very easy to generate gigantic layers if you think about um, if you if you don't design your system, your Docker file cor correctly, you know. So in the example I just gave, up, apt update, apt upgrade, apt install, right? Those are like sensible commands I might type myself if I had a fresh new computer that you handed me. Right. The simple thing to do would be to run them as three separate layers, and that makes a lot of sense. But I've pulled down a whole bunch of stuff and replaced a bunch of. Uh, um, there's a load of temporary files that get pulled into the apt directory that right. I probably don't need in my production image. Um, I've then updated a whole bunch of stuff, which has replaced a bunch of stuff. And then I'm like maybe installing my own packages and maybe I remove some system packages that I don't want. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I've got three or four layers, each of which is strictly additive. And then there is sometimes if you had to delete files, so you might be tempted at the end of that to go. And the last thing I do is RM minus RF var apt cache, right? Kill the cache. I don't want it anymore. It's like yep. gigabytes of all the intermediate crap that was downloaded while I was installing my packages. But if you put it as a separate step, unfortunately, those already exist. Those intermediate files exist in a layer. That delete can't remove them from the layer. It just marks them as being, you can't see them right. anymore. It puts tombstones right. in there. And so your overall size, the number of bytes you need to ship around, still contains 
the layer that has all of those files in it and then a separate layer that says and by the way all those files are gone now <laughs> right, right so you right, have to right. be really careful so you what people end up doing is writing a, a, a long stanza of like apt get and update and what well, as like one giant long single bash command mm-hmm. and at the very end of that rm minus r var apt cache and depackage dash dash you know purge caches all the things as one thing so atomically all those things happen and then it's just the, the end result that gets shipped as the layer. Yeah, yeah. And that I've definitely seen that in Docker files, and it's sort of this, like, you know, uh, it just reads as gobbledygook as at the start of the file, and you sort of parse it, and you sort of figure out what's going on there, but it's it's not the sort of, like, clean, you know, one instruction at a time, maybe with right. a helpful comment as to why you're doing it. And, um, that you, you know, you, you see want. sometimes people will write shell scripts that they then copy into the image to run and then delete again afterwards, just because then yeah. the shell script is essentially atomic from the point of view of the layers. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it could be a tooling thing. It could be just what you'll get used to. I don't know, but it's easy to get wrong. Yeah. And the thing is that as a developer running locally, you tend not to notice these mistakes because it's necessarily incremental. You've been doing this, you've been building on and building on and building on. Right, and then when right. you ship the, the when you dock a push for the first time, you discover that you've got several layers of you know gigabytes each. And I'm sure you've done this as well when you've pulled someone else's Docker image and you're like, oh my golly, what on earth yeah. is it pulling down? <laughs> Why, you know, why is this Docker image so big as a game that many have played and few have won? <laughs> it's <laughs> it's it's just it's a really painful experience sometimes. You know, you start cracking open the layers and trying to figure out what the heck is going on, and it's just like, oh geez, why are we doing this? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of the time, Docker people reach for Docker because it's super convenient. Everyone understands it, and it does solve a very real need. Mm-hmm. But I think oftentimes, in my experience with the, the kind of things that we do, at least, um, a tarball of the, the code that you're going to run, mm-hmm. maybe containing the node.js binary you want to run it with, or maybe, cont- right. you know, because we, we're in a luxurious position where we own our machines. They live in a data center. We know which machines they're running on, which are, you know, probably virtual machines as it happens. So that's another layer of uh, virtuality above all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we know a lot of things about what version of libc is it running, what you know base operating system are we running, what things can I assume are there, which of course is now a dangerous game to play, which Docker kind of makes you address fully. But most right. of the time you're like, well, okay, if I've got libc this version, I'll just pass along all my dependencies, right? And it's not that big, you know, for native applications, often a bit of an, uh, uh, a few environment variables, and suddenly now uh, all of your DLLs will be looked for inside the, the directory you ship, and then you just like copy them all with you. And that's a bit bigger. But, you know, we're talking tens of megabytes of, of right. library files here, right, in a little tarball that you extract and will run on the developer's machine and a remote machine. And I guess the other sort of critical part about Docker is that it requires elevated privileges, which means that there's a lot of monkeying around with which user you're running as. Right. And that sometimes it's useful. You, sometimes you want a totally unprivileged user that's isolated from the rest of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, in the, like the kind of, was it 12-factor type model where um, uh, an application sort of consumes, uh, only logs the standard out, only yeah, reads yeah. and writes to external things through TCP, that's right. fine. You treat it as like a black box. But very yeah. often, it's tempting for developers to kind of go, well, it'd be really convenient if I could get to this set of files on the network, or if I could write to this log directory. And so yeah. you start passing things, you start puncturing the isolation that Docker gives you. And then suddenly you wonder why on earth you've got 100 files that are owned by the wrong user. Right. Excuse right. me, there's a truck going past. Um, but, you know, you run this command and then you'd like try to delete it afterwards and it goes, I'm sorry, I can't delete that. You know, you need to be root. And you're like, wait a second, I'm not. I, how, did right. you, how are you root? Yes, how did you write this as root? And I, and I think it is really an unfortunate thing that the default behavior, behavior of Docker is to run as root because it's really easy to sort of fall into a trap of, of um, building an application that accidentally, for really no good reason, needs those elevated privileges, right? Like if you had just been forced to think about it for a minute, you would have been like, oh, we don't, I mean, the, the dumbest example I can think of is like we're binding to port 100 instead of, you know, 2000, right? Yep. Like there's no reason in the world why that integer ma- matters to anyone, but 
if you build a whole application, it's like, yeah, there's 30 other apps that connect to port 100 because that's the port that we chose. Um, and not realizing that. that that requires elevated privileges, um, then you've, you've just added a whole bunch of, you've added a constraint completely by accident. Right. Um, and, and running as a non-privileged user, you'll find that out right away, right? Um, right. And there are other things like that too. And I, and I feel like it's almost like the testing thing, right? Not uh, on brand. Oh um, my gosh. Testing, you say? Yeah, Tell I know. me more. I, I haven't talked about testing in like a podcast and a half. So I, I know. To, All right. It's you've the, got you know, part of the pass. reason you write the test first is to make sure that the resulting solution that you come up with is testable, right? If you build something uh, and you don't think about tests and then you try to add the test later, it's really hard. And so most people don't, right? And it's and the reason for that is, well, you came up with a perfectly reasonable solution if you completely ignore this other constraint. Yeah. And then you try to add it in later, right? And so you're doing kind of the same thing when you run uh, you know, apps in as root in Docker is you've you've got a constraint that would be nice, but you don't even think about it until it's, it's, it's invisible. Which yeah. okay, so I'm going to take the other side of that, just to sort of in the defense of a Docker style thing. I know obviously this is uh, uh, there's many a nuance here, but right. one of the things that Docker gives you kind of out of the gate is deployability, which is another thing that if you don't think about it right at the beginning, yeah, you it's hard to retrofit. We've all seen applications yes. that you're like, well, this is well, all well and good if I can get clone and I've got full access to the internet and then I can run uh, these commands and I've got access to these things and I can do whatever. And you're like, that's great on my developer machine. Again, the loudest truck in the world is now outside my house. They're circling. They're just circling. They, they really, no, it's just, he's taunting me. He's reversing it up. This has been the most. I'm, I will try and edit some of these things, but I think if you if you can hear this, dear listener, then I failed to edit the podcast <laughs> very well. All right, I think they've gone. So, but yeah, where were we? Um, I was ranting about something. You were about else to is defend my way. Docker. It was I was definitely no. The deployability is an important yes. thing to uh -huh. not have to retrofit afterwards, and Docker kind yes. of hands you that straight away. You're like, well, Docker pull, Docker run, amazing, right? My CI is Docker build and docker push and my runtime is docker uh, pull and docker run mm -hmm. and the cool thing is that my developers can run as if they have the ci build because they can docker pull as well and then docker run as well and so it ticks tons of boxes right yeah it's so yeah. lovely right from that point of view yeah. Again, until you discover that half of your computer is now owned by root and you don't actually have root <laughs> privileges on it. And then you're like, well, I'm stuck with these files, I guess. Yes, right. Until you fire up the container and then uh, RM them from the container Inside because the, the container, container which, has root. Yes. I mean, a good friend of mine, I will not drop them in, in uh, but a good friend of mine has a one-liner that gives you actual root privileges on the machine that you're on if you have docker available with non-sudo it's a convenient little thing to remember and just click and oh that's so right right if you have docker you basically have root yes <laughs> even if you weren't allowed it in the first place if you and if you live if you work in one of those horrible environments where they don't let you have sudo on your own machines which is insane but they do exist you can maybe put in a request for docker instead and get basically the same thing <laughs> Let me just uh, say that this this uh, this is a personal opinion that Ben and I hold. Um, no one to get anyone in trouble with their security yeah. teams. Please don't do anything daft with that information. Right, but it is true, right. yes. and it's great for taunting your infrastructure <laughs> and SecOps folks if uh, you indeed need Docker for whatever. Anyway, that's that's yes. Docker. Other yeah. containment containment container yes. solutions. I mean containment, containment as well. Solutions like um, from the Ghostbusters. Like from yeah, uh, I was actually thinking the same thing. Yeah, the light is green, the trap is clean. Uh huh. Uh, uh, yeah, so I mean VMware. So we talked, we kicked off yes. this whole discussion with with VMware and virtual machines, which are uh, a very different kind of technology than Docker. Uh, do you think you could give us a, a two minute overview of the differences between something like VMware or VirtualBox or other sort of virtual machines and Docker, having built many virtual machines? That's in your a, life? Well, my virtual <laughs> machines have all been um, eight bit, um, yeah. if I'm like, which makes them considerably easier on some axes. But yeah, so the let's explain a little bit about how Docker is working. So at least Docker on Linux, which is my only experience here. So Linux supports uh, namespacing. That is the ability to make groups and re uh, resource allocations that are kind of contained and have their own namespace away from anyone else running on the system. And now obviously you can think about a user 
is a sort of a namespace of vaguely, but you know, if you type PS as a particular user or PS AUX, you can see all of the other users that are running on the system. In this instance, namespaces can contain off areas of the operating system so that like the main operating system can see what's going on. But if you're inside that namespace, if a process is inside that namespace, it only sees things in its own namespace. And namespaces can be file systems, they can be users, they can be, um, oh, uh, CPUs, and uh, that may be secrets, but there's a number of things, number of like um, aspects of the system which can be compartmentalized and held separate. Um, but you're still running the same operating system and you're still doing all the things that you were doing before. You're just making a new namespace. And what Docker effectively is doing is making a new namespace, um, creating inside that namespace a bunch of links to the outside world for things like the terminal, for things like, um, oh yeah, network is another namespace you can create and you can make a namespace, you can make a bridge then that, talk, that talks one namespace to another as if it was uh, one of those network devices that we're talking about. Like sort of, uh, uh, um, and, and then you're basically running like a regular process, except that if you type PS or if you two type LS, you'll only see the world that the container gave you through giving you your own namespace. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit like if someone's ever looked at like CH root jails, which was like the, the precursor to this, where you could say, hey, start a new process and pretend that the root directory, like the slash, the top of the hierarchy, is this subfolder I just made. And then you can never see outside of there. And you can imagine that you're effectively in a jail. You can't see outside of there. And your process can run along and, um, and, and be isolated. And it, it, you can see how you might build like a, a duplicate operating system image in there and then run it. But it's running really on the main operating system. And that has a really interesting side effect. The kernel calls that you're making are going straight to the host operating system's kernel. There is no kernel that you're running inside your Docker container. Mm -hmm. So if you're running on um, kernel version 5 point star, um, and there's some whiz-bang new feature that's in kernel version 6 and above, and you've got a Docker image that's Ubuntu 24, whatever, that wants to use that, it ain't going to work. No, man, no amount of Docker magic will make new features appear in your running kernel. Virtualization, on the other hand, takes this down to the hardware level and pretending effectively like you are... Oh, God, now the distractions are a cat hitting the microphone. Uh... <laughs> At the virtualization level, you are pretending that you have uh, a CPU and resources, network resources and hardware resources that don't actually exist. Mm -hmm. And then a, a, a full-on kernel boots up in that world. And as far as that kernel is concerned, with a few caveats, it thinks that it's running on a real computer, but it's actually running on a simulation of a computer that's running on the real computer. Now it's kind of like how we're all living in a simulation. We are all living world. in a simulation, right. which explains <laughs> an awful lot. Yes, right. But yeah, we're all living in some kind of the matrix and all we're doing is we're putting another matrix in our matrix so that we can yes. run uh, another copy inside of that. So as far as that virtual machine is concerned, it is a full sovereign computer in its own right and it can do anything it likes unaware that when it says, hey, oh, I've got a network device over here, what's really happening is that some kind of um, trap is happening in the CPU when it's accessing or trying to access that device, and an operating system one layer up in the list of, of matrices um, <laughs> right. goes, oh, wait a second. And much like when um, a regular operating system misses a page and has to swap it in from disk and like the process is put to sleep and while the, 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 the image is read and then it kind of goes, oh, I, yeah, the memory is there now. The same thing happens at one layer above in what's called the hypervisor, which is like the operating system running the show for all of the operating systems underneath it. And so that hypervisor can do... Uh, can arbitrate access to the real network cards and the real physical block devices like the hard disks that are in the machine uh, that you're you're emulating. Um, and then when you say emulation, you think it's going to be super slow. And in fact, you know, you could obviously write an, a genuine emulator and then you would... Um, you could you know, pretend to be an ARM machine when you're running on an x86 or whatever. What mm -hmm. typically happens is that... Um, uh, these are hardware accelerated. The CPU knows, quotes, that there are layers and rungs of the of the hierarchy of uh, of, of simulation environments, mm -hmm. and um, it gives the hypervisor more privileges than the um, the operating system underneath. And in fact, mostly nowadays, 
um, the guest operating systems, as they're called, are in cahoots with the virtualization layer. They actually do know that they are living yeah. in an, a simulation. And that allows certain things to be a lot faster. So instead of actually having to emulate a real network card, and like as with this sort of two-way back and forth between the hypervisor and the underlying uh, operating system, there can be some kind of agreed thing of like, hey, I'd like to talk to the network card. I'm just going to put all the, the data I would like you to look at over here. And then, hey, hypervisor, imagine that a network, you did the whatever the network card thing did. There's a yeah, certain amount of collaboration. Yeah. I'm making that up in full disclosure. <laughs> but yeah. what that means is that when you go to your uh, Amazon account and say, I'd like a new computer, please, that computer is not a real computer. It is just a virtual computer running on someone else's infrastructure. And you get a certain number of CPUs which, and a certain number of disk IOs per second and all that good stuff. And this then comes back to the VMware thing that you were saying at the beginning. This is why infrastructure folks love it because I can buy two 128-core uh, terabyte RAM machines and then I can hand them out to as many developers as I like in like two or three or four CPU slices, which I can't even buy. I can't buy a T2 CPU computer right. anymore. Yep. And they get to share it and they all have root on their machine and there's no way they can bust out of their virtualization environment right, right right to get to the hypervisor but they have they and then they can they can like blue screen their kernel can panic the whole thing can go down it because exactly like a normal computer except that really it's just one tenth of the physical machine you're running on right right so when the annoying developer tells you that they need a server to run their app and you ask what the app is and they're like well this is node.js app that runs in one thread you're like there's no way on the planet i'm giving you a ten thousand dollar server to run a single threaded node.js app so i'm just gonna give you this one little slice and, and you, you think it's that. a server and it has yeah. its own operating system which yes. means obviously there is a you know your storage requirements both in terms of memory and in terms of disk space go up because, you know, like there is a real honest to God Linux kernel running there and probably on the sibling CPU, like literally on the die, you know, two millimeters away from you is another CPU running someone else's Linux kernel right, and never right. the twain shall talk to each other. Right. Rohammer issues and other things aside. I would, uh, yeah, don't, don't give me an in to talk about that kind of stuff. <laughs> right, you know, so right, actually, right. yeah, right. We are going to, we're going to have to now because you poke my buttons. <laughs> So like Rohammer, not Rohammer, but that's <laughs> yeah. that's definitely one for another conversation. But yeah. what um, what a reasonable person might do, given what I just said, mm -hmm. is say, well, the hypervisor is sat there not doing very much, doesn't need any CPU resources most of the time because it's reactive to the host operating systems that are really running on the CPUs, right? But we could potentially say, well, let's give one or so CPU to the hypervisor itself, and it can do some background maintenance activities. What if it scanned through all of the physical memory of the computer and went, wait a second, I've seen this 4K page before, right? I've got every single of my 60 guest operating systems have all loaded up variants of the same Linux operating system. Why the hell would I have the same 4K pages, you know, like many, many, many 4K pages that are exactly the same because they all loaded like, you know, VM Linux 4, 5, 29, whatever. Why don't I just point them all at the same actual physical location and then discard the copies of it, but like pretend to all of the individual guest operating systems that they have their own copy. And then it's just copy on write. If they try to write to it, then they get their own copy. A bit like, you know, when you fork a process on a single operating system, yeah. the same tricks happen. Makes perfect sense. Now, obviously, you have to do it retroactively. When you fork, you know that every page that you currently have is going to be shared in the child process. But this is a sort of emergent property of once you've booted a machine up, eventually some pages will be the same on one machine as they are on another, in which case you deduplicate them. And then you're right, you've got more free memory for the system as a whole. And it seems like there could be no, there could be nothing wrong with that until the security people come along. Yes. <laughs> and, and they say, ruin everyone. And ruin fine. everyone. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so it was shown that and maybe i won't go into too much details for two reasons one i don't necessarily know the details and two we've probably talked too much about this already um it was shown that if you have the same implementation of open ssl or one of the other cryptographic libraries as mm. a co-located virtual machine to you so I, i'm going to just go to amazon and i'm going to ask for 100 ec2 instances and then I'm going to run a test to see if I can find that I'm co-located with my target. Just by coincidence, I happen to be running on a machine that also has an SSL mm. process somewhere in it, right? The chances are that obviously those 4K pages will be deduplicated because it's the same .so, 
that mm. we've both got. It's OpenSSL, Ubuntu, whatever version, right? Now I can start doing timing attacks because I know my physical RAM is associated with the same physical RAM that they have. And so if I know which code paths are taken in their code, I can poke around in my cache and sort of try and determine oh, whether or not... Oh, the keys, basically. Exactly. Like, oh, I got this bite of the key and I got that bite of the key and I don't have it all yet, but that's close enough. It took a long while to read this bit out yeah. because it must have been an L L3. But if it wasn't, then I know it must be in someone's L2 somewhere. And yeah. that someone might be, and all these kinds of things. And you can imagine yeah. how terrifying that is from a point of view of, of, of security. You're like, you've lost the isolation between the virtual machines that aren't even meant to right. ign- know that their siblings exist. So that's your own fault, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> worth it. We can talk about Rohammer another time. Worth it, worth it. So in terms of deployment, though, I mean, it's it, you, you sort of alluded to that by saying that, like, as a developer, it's convenient to be able to go to your infrastructure folks and say, can I just have a server to run my right. little Node.js app? Or not even talk to them and just like run a script that generates one for you. And they keep tabs on it and they know who's allocated to. And they can call you up and say, hey, you're using 35 servers. Do you really need them? But, you know, that's you can very automate true. those things, right? And it's really great when you do. That's very true. I mean, I forget, yeah. of course, that that's, this is what Terraform and what the like do for, yeah. for, for me and Amazon, right? I just say, how oh, when another computer, another computer appears, it's never occurred to me that really somewhere behind the scenes, some, all this magic is going on to make that happen. But, you know, it just does. Right. And yeah, that puts a lot of power and responsibility, but a lot of power into the developer's hand. You don't have to like overload a machine and you get the isolation that say a Docker container would give you, but yeah. at a much deeper level. Now, different problems yes. again. Right. You know, at least... In your own server, if it's running as root, well, it's only running as root because you made it run as root, right. as root, right? <laughs> you yes. got every choice you like. Yeah, um, yeah. So what do we think about that in terms of like the, the trade-offs? When, what, would, what would make you choose one method over another? I mean, I, I, I tend to lean more toward, you know, having virtual machines and you know, having uh, more of like the, I'm going to get this virtual machine. I, I will probably build some very lightweight automation to set it up. But again, the setup of it is mostly just, you know, kind of like you were saying, the app update, app upgrade, you know, maybe install one or two system packages, but hopefully not if I can avoid it. And then just run all my applications as a user, as an unprivileged user and, you know, every version is a new tarball that gets copied up to the computer or maybe have some automated thing that pulls them down from a central you've, repository. You've somewhere. got like a deployment thing that you use, haven't you? You've got like, a, is it Git, uh, Git Deploy? Oh, Git Deploy? That's yeah. A, is Git, that open? That is open source, right? That is open source. Yeah. So Git Deploy is sort of my Heroku style deployment script that I made um, that will let you take any server that you have SSH access to uh, and... Um, basically push to it as it as if it was a Git repository, and as a side effect of that, if the if the push works, that is your code is not out of sync with everyone else that's deployed to it, it will deploy your application and start up. And so you get to sort of use the Git semantics around push and pull as your mechanism to make sure that you don't accidentally clobber someone else's deployment. I see. Right. Um, and it's so it's sort of a safer way to be able to empower people to deploy locally from their machines if that makes sense to do. Now, sometimes right. that doesn't, doesn't make sense. always make do. sense, right, yeah. But... Uh, in fact, it sort of usually doesn't make sense, but sometimes it makes a ton of sense. And it's really nice to be able to do that in a way that is safer than just, you know, SCP, <laughs> right? Right, but I mean, um, often, you know, there, there, are, there are also places where, or times when you want to be able to push to like a development oh, machine, a development yeah. cluster. And that seems like a good thing there where I would actually want, the feature is I have a code on my machine that I want right. to have running in an environment that I can't rep- reproduce myself locally. Right. It's not right, ideal right. to be in a situation where you can't quite reproduce it locally, but sometimes, you know, I want to batter it with 200 um, yeah. machines that are going to send qu- queries to it. And so I want to deploy my version that has my yep. fi- fixing or whatever. Yep. Yep. And I mean, you know, you can take, speaking of virtualization, like you can take these things a lot further. And one of the things that I've been playing around with one of my projects is sort of getting rid of the idea of the production environment. So all of the environments in this project that I'm working on are just branches. There's the main environment for the main branch. And that's where the DNS entry for the top level domain points to. 
But if you make a new branch, it will automatically spin up a new environment and it will marshal all the services that that environment Ooh. needs and it will do everything that it does. And so if you want to make a change that involves potentially making changes to the infrastructure, like, oh, I'm going to change a security group or I'm going to change, you know, the number of servers from, from four to five or whatever it might be. Yeah. You just create a new branch. You push that branch to GitHub and the infrastructure magically appears. That and the name of that is infrastructure awesome. is literally the name of the branch. So they're tied together in that way. And when you delete the branch, the infrastructure gets torn down. That's and super so cool. The main branch is always there. That's sort of the quote unquote production environment. Um, but if you were to ever delete the main branch, it would also actually tear down the, the, the <laughs> production environment, I mean, that's which probably is like what you want, though. You know, it's like it's sort of a weird thing, but it's like it's like no, just like coupling it. those two things together very tightly and saying a branch is an environment. There's no such thing as the dev or the test or the UAT or the production. They're just names of branches. Right. Um, and that is only possible because of virtualization. You couldn't do that any other way. On a real machine. You know, well, yeah for, yeah, for all the reasons. I mean, c yeah. cost was what I was about to bring up because, you right. know, that um, I, I'm sort of trying to move Compiler Explorer towards a system which is a tiny bit more like that, where instead of mm -hmm. the staging environment that we do test in being kind of like just a subcategory under the production environment, it's like its own AWS account, effectively. Mm -hmm. And then I can do the t kind of things you're talking about, like, hey, let's have a new... Um, load balancer let's try out a different way of doing everything in the staging environment uh but for me that's prohibitively expensive because right. those resources are not free and they're quite expensive like having one load balancer is expensive enough uh and and i can configure that one load balancer to kind of say well if it has slash staging in the thing then goes to this this subsection right and that's how it works at the moment but um so there's a trade-off to be had there and obviously yeah. In, in a world of infinite resources, it's no problem that if you create 12 different branches, you've got 12 environments. Right, right, right. Well, one of my subtle motivations for doing this, and again, I'm trying this on my own project, but you know, maybe one day I'll get to do this in a in a a, a more um, you know widely shared um, company environment, is to directly manifest to the bean counters the cost of so many different branches. That's um, amazing. It's sort yeah. of like, yeah, you know, branches have a cost and it's hard for you to measure that cost because it's mostly cognitive load on developers. What if we just turn that into dollars? Actual dollars. And then you could measure them and be like, why do they, then you have accountants I mean, yelling, why do we have so many branches? As, as and, one of those folks that sends out the emails and the, the nags to people saying like, hey, <laughs> yes. this PL has been open for three years. Is there right. any chance of it being closed? I totally right. am down with that. Right. Yeah, the right, cognitive right, load right. when I hit autocomplete in uh, in the <laughs> for my branch name, I'm like, what the heck is this? This person left the company two years ago. Why is yes, it still here? Right. Yeah. Why is this here? Those kinds of things. Yeah. 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 No, cool. that's a, that's a, I I like that approach. I like the idea of of manifesting. And I think you know, obviously, you've talked about doing it in terms of virtualization. Mm -hmm. There are ways and means of doing it with the uh, Docker style approach as well and Absolutely. i know we're, we're kind of getting close on the amount of time that we've got available but um i'd like to sort of suggest you know there's the kubernetes um, type approach there's uh, nomad which is a HashiCorp system which can be used to run docker containers and then there are definitely load balancer type things that can talk to those containers and you could definitely have it so that every branch that you commit builds a docker image and pushes it to yeah. a, a tag a named tag for that branch and then auto registers a container, a job running in Nomad to say, hey, I'm the, your project hyphen, your branch name environment that has all of these yeah. machines running. So it can be done too. You are still paying the cost. There are processes running mm -hmm. in one operating system or one set of operating systems that is the Nomad cluster or the Kubernetes cluster or whatever. It's a sort of lower... Um, I guess it's higher level. I don't know how you describe it, where it, where it's cutting. <laughs> you know, is it lower level or higher level um, than than know, virtualization? Actually. It's definitely higher level, like measured on the axis that makes sense to me right now. But yeah. um, but uh, yeah, so so you can achieve it using that too, which is which is great. Um, and I mean, I think all of this kind of comes down to is that what we're talking about in at this instance is infrastructure as code. However, it's achieved, be it VMs yeah. or Nomad machines running docker stuff and so we've kind of strayed from the original point about like what, what how does one do deployment how does one use virtualization how is it what different things are available but yeah they're all related though they are i guess related yeah yeah, yeah. and that infrastructure as code thing is, is is super important to be able to say like yeah I, it's not no one has to rack a machine right. no one has to 
um, physically move any cables around when I yes. stand up this instance here. Um, and that instance is defined by a piece of code or a configuration file that's generated by code or just a configuration file that a human edits, which, you know, is, is a fabulous way of tracking. I mean, we're especially software engineers. We know where we stand with source control and CI and things like that. So having right. having the, mach- the the physical world work that way, too, and be able to roll back and all that kind of stuff is super cool. However, so it's achieved. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, this is this has been a fun exposition of. What on earth can we remember about how all this stuff fits together? <laughs> yeah, I feel like we only really like touched on it. Like, there's you could probably do a whole other hour on these topics. Like, you know, talk about Kubernetes. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I don't know enough about Kubernetes. I mean, I use but... Borg at Google, which I I believe to be related in some way, but I don't know yeah. either. I remember them trying to yeah. pretend that it wasn't called that, and they used to pretend that it was an Anita Borg. It was named after not clearly the 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 evil people in in Star Trek, right? Uh, which, yeah. And I think that was because they, they leaked out because um, they weren't laundering their uh, referrers. And so uh, people were running internal yeah. services from machines and then people would like link to, I don't know, YouTube, not YouTube videos, because that would be Google too, but, you know, right. link to other yeah. people's websites. And then it's all yes. went through like, what is this? All the machines had like um, names that, DNS names that re- uniquely refer to the job that were running, that was running yeah. on it, which is super convenient for everything. You know, you want to hit your job and it's running a web server, then you just go to that long name and it hits the machine and the machine then looks at the uh, the the name you gave it and then it redirects it to the correct port for that particular instance that you were running on Mm -hmm. and then off there there you are there's your there's your job running and you can look at it um but obviously if you then have a web page on there that has a hey click the cat animation you click the cat animation then you've leaked you know 12.7.borg.google.dns or whatever right 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 oops refers refer headers man yeah 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 uh, All right, we should stop yeah. talking. We should stop we should talking. We've got talking, plenty of so, things great. to audit, uh, yeah. audit, to edit. <laughs> that includes and audit and audit. I mean, <laughs> we, got, we can't let the Borg stuff leak out. That's true. <laughs> that ship has sailed. <laughs> cool. All right. I'll right, we'll see you next time. Bye. been listening to Two's Compliment, a programming podcast by Ben Rady and Matt Gottwald. Find the show transcript and notes at twoscompliment.org. Contact us on Twitter at 2CP, that's at T-W-O-S-C-P. Theme music by Inverse Phase, inversephase.com. <laughs>